Well, this month we've been in a series called When You Don't See, looking at the story of Ruth, and we get to conclude that today. This is a book about how to follow God when there are no visions, no dreams, no miracles. When you don't see him and you don't see him working, how do you follow him? That's what this book has been about. And today we get to see how God has been orchestrating things to lead to something really cool. But if you haven't been here, or if you're not familiar, or you don't remember what happened, let's catch up so that we can see what happens today. So the story starts with this woman named Naomi, and her life was experiencing lots of tragic events. She had lost her husband. She had lost her two boys. Her boys, before they died, had married foreign women that were known for being promiscuous. And so lots of stuff had gone wrong for her. She was living away from her homeland. She was old, and she just wanted to die alone. But this woman named Ruth, her daughter-in-law, chose to stay with her when she returned back to the land she was from. And so she comes back to her hometown, Bethlehem. When she gets there, she says, just call me bitter, okay? And she tells her friends that she just wants to be left alone because she's bitter. And then it just so happens that Ruth gets a job in the field of this man named Boaz. And Boaz, it just so happens, is a close family member of Naomi's husband who's passed away. And it just so happens that Boaz notices this woman, Ruth. And it just so happens that he's very kind to her. And it makes Naomi think, wait a minute, maybe this guy could be our hope. Maybe he could redeem our family. We'll talk about that, what that means in just a minute. And so Naomi makes this kind of scandalous plan and she sends Ruth to see Boaz at night when no one would be around. And Boaz just so happens to respond to her with integrity and says, I've heard your request that you would like for me to redeem your family by marrying you. He says this to Ruth. He says, but it turns out there's actually a family member who's closer than me, who has the right before I do. So let me check with him and I'll get back to you. That's where the story left off last week. Today, we get to see how it all wraps up. Ruth chapter four, starting in verse one. Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. Soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. And Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Verse two. Then Boaz took 10 men of the town's elders and said, sit here. And they sat down. So Boaz is arranging to have this conversation in the presence of some authority so that they can get this matter wrapped up for Naomi and Ruth. Verse three, he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, 
is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother, Elimelech. So Elimelech is Naomi's husband who has died. And he says, here's the situation, all right? Naomi still owns some property that belonged to her husband. But because she doesn't have enough cash to actually pay anybody to work the field, and because she needs cash to be able to take care of herself, she's going to sell off this field so that she can be okay. She can take care of herself and Ruth. And so what he's proposing to the redeemer, to this to this man, is an ancient practice that was part of the Old Testament law. The practice was simply uh, like this. When God originally divided the land amongst the people, his goal was that it would be divided with equity, with justice. And so once a, a plot of land was given to a family, it was intended to stay in that family forever. And occasionally, you would find yourself in a position through various circumstances, like Naomi does, where you're not able to care for that field and you're not able to actually make any money off of that field to provide for yourself. And when that happens, you have the option to sell off that field. But every 50 years is what's called the year of Jubilee. And this is where they would take anything that had been sold and they would return it to the rightful owner so that everybody, regardless of the financial situations that they would find themselves in, they would be able to still maintain the land that had been given to their family. So that was what was supposed to happen. Now, in order to keep that from being extra chaotic in the event that lots of different land is getting exchanged, they instituted what was known as redeeming land from a family member. And so if you find yourself in a position where you're not able to care for your land or make money off your land, then what you would do is go get a family member who would be known as your family redeemer. This family member would buy the land from you. It would be their land so that they could use to do whatever they wanted with it. But in doing that, you keep the land within the family, which makes it easier on the year of Jubilee to return the land. Does that make sense? So that's why Boaz said last week, hey, there's somebody closer than me that we're gonna need to check with. There's somebody who is warranted ahead of me to take this land from you, to buy this land. He's got first dibs on your land, is essentially what he was saying. And so Boaz presents this situation to this guy. Verse four, I thought I should inform you. Buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know because there isn't any other than you to redeem it and I am next after you. So Boaz is saying, look, you've got first dibs. So if you wanna redeem it, then do it. But if you're not going to, then let me know because I'm next up after you. And this guy, we don't know his name. The way this is written in the original language is he's referred to as Mr. So-and-so. 
So it's just, what's his nose? You know, we don't, you know. Um, he's going to disappear off the pages of history because of how he responds to this whole deal. But so-and-so thinks, you know, this is actually a really good opportunity. I can get this land. I'll be able to build a larger inheritance for me and for my kids. And that'll be great. And I've got the money to do it. So let's do it. This is a wise investment. That's what he's thinking. And so he says, I want to redeem it, he answered. And this moment right here for Ruth and Naomi is like, but wait a minute. And for the original reader, if you've just been reading this story, like you want Boaz to be the hero. So it's like, Boaz, what are you doing, bro? Like you're about to let the girl get away. You're about to just pass her off to so-and-so. What are you doing? Why are you just going along and offering this guy the, the chance to redeem the whole situation. But Boaz says, oh, by the way, Mr. So-and-so, verse five, on the day you buy the field from Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. He says, there's a catch though. If you redeem this land, you're also going to need to marry Ruth. And this is referring to an Old Testament practice as well, where not only if uh, you couldn't take care of your land, would you have the opportunity to have someone redeem it from you, buy it from you, but... If a man was married and died before he was able to have kids, then a way of honoring him was for his brother or another family member to marry his wife and have kids. And the goal in doing so, once that person has the kid, the goal is that it carries on the person who has passed away's line. Does it make sense? It's a little confusing. I, I had to do like a deep dive and to understand like exactly how the, these rules break down. And you can read about this in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But essentially, they wanted to honor people. If you weren't able to have a kid, a family member would have a kid for you and your name, your line would continue. That was the goal. And so because this property belonged to Naomi now, and because Naomi's son had passed away, then Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth, needs to also be redeemed so that the family line of Naomi's son, Malon, can continue. Does that make sense? Okay, I know that's a lot of background, all right? So now the situation for Mr. So-and-so just got more complicated because now he's not just getting, you know, a great piece of property. And now he's not just able to build his own estate and his own inheritance for his own family, but now anything he was to earn off of this land would actually go to Ruth and their kid. And so he says, 
verse six. The redeemer replied, Mr. So-and-so, I can't redeem it myself or I will ruin my own inheritance. I'm gonna ruin what I'm trying to pass down. If I take this on and then I'm splitting up stuff between this other kid, I, I can't do that. So take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. And now the story is set to work out for Ruth and Boaz, for Naomi. Verse seven, at an earlier period in Israel, remember this is being written many years after these events. At an earlier, earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. Verse eight, so the redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. So this man takes off his sandal and says, it's yours. It's your right now to do whatever you want. You can be the redeemer if you're willing. Verse nine. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. That's her husband and her two sons. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite S, Malon's widow, as my wife, to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are witnesses today. Verse 11, all the people who were at the city gate, including the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephrathah, and your name well-known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son of Tamar, the son Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz says, I'll do it. Y'all are witnesses of this. They say, that's awesome. We hope the Lord blesses you and makes this all turn out well. May, may it be like Rachel and Leah who built the house of Israel and may it be like Perez, the son of Tamar, who was born to Judah. Now, why do they say that? This is a reference to an obscure story that honestly, I don't even wanna bring up a ton. Um, in Genesis chapter 38, you can go read this, but it was a story where there's a son who dies, his wife doesn't have any kids, so the brother marries her. He also dies and doesn't have kids. There was a third son, and the dad thinks, I'm not gonna give her the third son because clearly it's like something bad is happening once they get together. And so he decides not to, and then uh, she ends up deceiving Judah, her father-in-law, sleeps with him, and they have a son, all right? So that's how, uh, that's who Perez was. Perez was that son. But here's what's so interesting. 
Here's why they say this. Because it turns out that that son, Perez, ends up being the son who will continue the family line of Judah and will eventually lead to the Messiah. And it just so happens that Boaz is in that line. And so they say, we hope that just as it worked out, even though it was you know, really strange circumstances for Perez, we hope that it also will work out for you. Does it work out? Verse 13, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He slept with her and the Lord granted conception to her and she gave birth to a son. The women, verse 14, said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. Now, here's what's so interesting. This good stuff happened to Ruth. I mean, she had the son. But the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. And the you there is not referring to Boaz. It's referring to the kid. May his name, the name of this kid, be well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Why does the focus that has been on Boaz and Ruth turn to Naomi? Because how did the story start? With Naomi. And Naomi, when she returned to the land, she said she was empty. Now she's full. The story started with three funerals and it's ending with a wedding and a birthday party. And this son ends up redeeming Naomi's life. This son ends up restoring joy to Naomi. A woman who said, call me bitter and leave me alone, now gets to experience joy again because of this son who's born. Verse 16, Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap and became his nanny. She becomes a grandmother and she just loves it and it restores her life. Verse 17, the neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed, which means servant. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And if this was a movie, that's where the credits would start. 
But if you've been to a movie where the credits start and as you're getting your stuff to walk out of the theater, all of a sudden there's another scene that comes on. You're like, whoa, wait a minute. I didn't know that Iron Man was the start of this massive thing. (laughs) And so you sit back down to watch the scene that's flowing after the credits. That's what these last few verses are. Now, these are the family records of Perez. Remember him? Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. David, of course, would become the greatest king in Israel's history. What started in the time of the judges when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In the midst of that period, God was orchestrating events in obscurity through this family to provide a king. Here, I think, is the summary of this chapter and the summary of this book. God is always doing more than we can see. God is always doing more than we can see. God was doing more in Naomi's life than she could see. Think about her life for just a minute. Think about the tragedy she was experiencing when we met her. She's away from home. She had lost her husband. Her boys had married Moabite women. She had lost her boys. Opportunity had passed her by because she was old. She was bitter and ready to die alone. That's who Naomi was when we met her. But it just so happened that one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, was a noble woman of character who was loyal to her. And it just so happened that she went to Boaz's field and it just so happened that Boaz noticed her and was kind to her. And it just so happened that Boaz responded with integrity to this scandalous proposal. And it just so happened that Mr. So-and-so says no. And it just so happens that Boaz redeems the family. I mean, imagine what happens if Ruth doesn't come back with Naomi. And what seemed like an annoyance to Naomi at first, that Ruth wouldn't leave her alone, actually turns out to be the thing that blesses her. And imagine what happens if Ruth just so happens to go to a different field. And imagine what happens if Boaz is not a man of character. And imagine what happens if Mr. So-and-so says, you know what, I'll, I'll take you up on that. And imagine what happens if Boaz was not actually able to be a redeemer. In order to be a redeemer, you have to be warranted to do so. You have to have the right to do so. You have to be wealthy enough to do so. And you have to be willing to do so. Boaz was all three of those things. It just so happens. God is always doing more than we can see. 
And in Naomi's life, God was orchestrating events, even when she couldn't see, that would eventually lead to her having joy again. What started with a funeral ends with a wedding and a birthday party. What started with death ends with life. What started with bitterness ends with happiness. God was doing more than she could see. What started as a tragedy ended in triumph. God is always doing more than we can see. God was working far more in Naomi's life than she realized. But that's not even the best part of this story. Because not only was God doing more for Naomi than she could see, but God was doing more for the world through Naomi than she or anyone could see. Now think about this for just a minute. This little story happens as a footnote in the Bible. I mean, it's four simple chapters. It says it happens during the period of the judges. We've got a whole book about the period of the judges and we don't even hear about any of these characters. When this happened, when Boaz decides to redeem Ruth, it maybe would have ended up in the paper in Bethlehem, but it's not a national news story. And it's certainly not a story for the world at that point. Nobody knows that it matters. It seems like it only benefits maybe Naomi and Ruth, but for everybody else, it's just, ah, it's a nice thing. Praise God, you know. But God is always doing more than we can see. And so what happens as a footnote in biblical history turns out to be on the front page of the New Testament. Because the way that God orchestrates these events is connected to God's bigger story in the world. God was up to something. God was forming a kingdom with a king. The story of Ruth gets us to David. The story of David gets us to the Messiah. Listen to Matthew chapter one, verse one. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then in Matthew chapter one, we've got a direct quote from Ruth chapter four. Matthew chapter one, verse five. Solomon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered King David. God was arranging for Boaz to redeem Naomi so that your story could be redeemed through their son. Jesus. 
God is always doing more than we can see. Jesus turns out to be named Jesus because he's the one who can redeem his people from their sins. Jesus grows up and he becomes the redeemer of the world. In order to be a redeemer, you have to be warranted to do so. You have to have the right to do so. Jesus said in John chapter six, the father has set his seal of approval on me. He was warranted to do so. He was wealthy enough to do so. Did Jesus have the resources to redeem? You bet he did. He's the guy who's walking on water. He's the guy who's healing disease. He's the guy who's casting demons out of people. He's the guy who's raising the dead. He's the guy who, though he was rich, for your sake, he became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich. Does he have the resources, the wealth to redeem? You bet he does. And was he willing to redeem? Yes, he was. He takes up a wooden cross and he goes to his death in order to redeem you. In order to redeem anyone who would come to him in faith. And the story of Ruth shows up again in his genealogy as a reminder that even non-Jewish people can be redeemed by this savior. Jesus is the redeemer for all the world. First John chapter two, verse one says, for all the world, which means that Jesus is not just a Jewish savior and he's not just an American savior. He is a global savior. God arranged for Boaz to redeem Naomi's story so that your story could be redeemed through his son. And if we come to God in faith, then what happened for Naomi's story will happen for our story. Our story will end like Naomi's, but for eternity, if we come to faith in Jesus. Jesus takes up a cross and goes to a tragic death. But just like Naomi's story, what starts with a funeral on Friday ends with a resurrection on Sunday. That is the only story God tells. It's his people in faith, moving from tragedy because of the brokenness of our world, brokenness that we have all contributed to by our sin, God leads us from tragedy to triumph in his son, Jesus. Emptiness can end in fullness. 
Bitterness can end in happiness. Weeping ends in laughter. Darkness ends in glorious light. Death is swallowed up by victory in this story. So the invitation from the book of Ruth is to come believe in this redeemer. Come believe in the one who would come through this family line to redeem you. Come believe. God is always doing more than we can see. If that's true, if God is always doing more than we can see, then how should we live when we don't see? If God is always doing more than we can see, then how should we live when we don't see? We should live by faith. We should live by faith. Are you tired and ready to give up today? Are you facing obstacles that would make it easier for you to abandon your faith? Does it feel like following Jesus is costing you more than it's worth? Lift your eyes this morning and believe the promise that with God, tragedy ends in triumph. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. If we die with him, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. To the one who conquers, he will give the right to sit on his throne. So walk by faith. Do not compromise your integrity. Do not give up your faith in the midst of the obstacles, in the midst of the unanswered prayers, but instead persevere because at the end, there is triumph. At the end, what feels like a funeral now will end with a wedding. So do not give up faith. If God is always doing more than we can see, then how should we live when we don't see we should live by faith. We should also live with hope. We should live with hope. Are you overcome with worries? Are there so many things fighting for your attention? Are there so many decisions to make and people to please? Um, this past week, um, I just put some time on the calendar to get away for a day. There's some generous people in our church who let me use a cabin of theirs for a day just to pray and plan. And it's right outside of Leavenworth. And so my goal was going. Um, I was gonna pray and just think about some stuff. And I just noticed that my heart kept going like this, bringing my eyes down to the things right in front of me. We've got a lot of stressful stuff going on, you know? We got mask mandates that we have to decide how we're gonna to respond to. And we got people who are gonna be disappointed no matter the response that we choose. That's not a fun thing, okay? You probably have situations where you have to deal with things like that too. And that's just the nature of life, right? Sometimes you have less fun weeks than others. So my heart's being drawn by that. We've got Grace Investigation Update that I knew was gonna be going out this week. We've got lots of other different things going on in my own life that I was just thinking about and burdened by. And so I'm praying and asking God to help me through these things, you know. 
And then I, I went into Leavenworth, into downtown Leavenworth for a moment, and I was just walking around and kind of people watching, and I realized, you know, this is a little mountain town surrounded by some of the most glorious mountains like that I've ever seen. I mean, maybe you take them for granted because you're from the Northwest or something, but in Tennessee, the Smoky Mountains are beautiful, but they're not like that, okay? And so I'm like, man, this is so amazing. And then I notice, why is it in little mountain towns like this, okay? This is true in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. This is true in Leavenworth. This was true in Interlaken, Switzerland, okay, in the Alps, which is even more beautiful than Leavenworth. Why is it that in these little mountain towns, we've got these little shops full of trinkets? And people go to these mountain towns and they spend hours just shopping for trinkets. And I thought, that is how we live our lives as Christians. We are being invited to look up at the mountains. Do you see what God is doing? Are you aware of how God orchestrates events for the glory of his son? Are you aware that all funerals will one day end with a wedding? Do you know where history is moving in Jesus? And yet, rather than gaze at the mountains, rather than live with our eyes fixed on the things of heaven, we instead shop for trinkets and get all bent out of shape that they don't have the trinket that we were hoping to buy. And it's like, man, could we repent of that as Christians? And could we live with hope? That's what God is inviting us into. That does not diminish the pain of the moment. That does not diminish the importance of sitting in the moment and taking time to lament or taking time to make wise decisions. But it does provide perspective for the moment. If God is always doing more than we can see, then how should we live when we don't see? We should live with hope. The gospel says... Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. That was true for Naomi. And God orchestrated the events of Naomi's life so that it could be true for you in the son who would come. And finally, we should live in love it's interesting in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter says, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, which means he was known about here in Ruth. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. That's where I got this application, faith and hope. And then where does Peter go next? What is the logical next step for people who recognize that they've been redeemed by Jesus? Here's the next step. Since you, are purif you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, that is the message about Jesus, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other, 
from a pure heart, love one another constantly. As people who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, the great redeemer, our highest calling is to love one another. Jesus said, by this, all the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That is our highest calling. Let's be a church who rests in the promises of God. God is always doing more than we can see. So let us be people who live by faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Let me pray for you. Father, Thank you for being so much smarter than us, for orchestrating plans in ways that we could never see. God, thank you for doing that for Naomi. Thank you for doing that for Ruth. Thank you for using Boaz in their lives. Thank you for using those events to bring your son, Jesus, into the world. I pray today that our eyes would be fixed on him that we would fix our eyes on him, the founder and perfecter of our faith, that we would cast aside the snares that so easily entangle us and that we would run with endurance the race that you have set before us. It's in Jesus' name that I ask this, amen. Would you stand and sing with us?